Welcome to On The Road, a show where automotive marketing professionals can learn from one another's journey. In this episode, we chat with the Director of Marketing for Ferrero Racing Components, Zeke Eurodia. Now, Ferrero is a great example of a company who's transitioning to digital while maintaining a clever foothold in traditional marketing, and we'll explore that. But before we get into all the nerdy business stuff, take a listen to Zeke's story at the beginning. It's an incredible peek behind the curtain of the company's racing history and how his grandfather passed away during a race in 1948. It's pretty compelling. Ladies and gentlemen, let's go. Zeke Rudia, uh, company for Rio Racing Components, and my title is uh, Director of Marketing. Cool. Um, so actually, so Zeke, can you tell me a little bit about yourself first? Because before we dive into a whole bunch of questions I have about valves, I'd like to know a little bit about you. <laughs> so I, I basically, I was born into racing. Um, my father, um, he, he raced for many years here in the States. How, how the company basically came about, my grandfather used to race in Argentina. So the company was originated out of Argentina, and uh, he actually passed away in a race car at 35 years old, my grandfather. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he basically he used to build cars for a lot of people around the area and the town where they lived in. And they used to do a lot of what used, what's called today like rally racing, because it really wasn't much asphalt or much dirt. I mean, much tracks that you could really go out there and race that were prepared like they're prepared today. Um, So a lot of the racing was dirt, you know, whether it was oval or circuit type racing back then. And he ended up actually passing away in the car. They they were doing the who's who of racing from Argentina up to Venezuela. Mm -hmm. And he ended up passing away in the car uh, with Juan Fangio, which Juan Fangio is five-time uh, yeah. F1 champion, you know, so they were they were really great friends. He helped out a lot, Juan Fangio, with a lot of stuff that he did through racing. And so, you know, this this came about where his death uh, was put into a memorial. Uh, the car was put into a museum. It, it ended up happening that when Juan Fangio was was in the driver's seat and my grandfather was in the passenger seat. They got to a point in the race where the Peru was having some, some type of civil war uh, mm. issues at that point. So they used to drive during the night and then the co-pilot would just switch, you know, in the car. Mm. They ended up uh, switching that night. And that's where my grandfather got into the uh, co-pilot seat. And uh, they just happened to go down this road because they have to go around the civil war again, where Right. In Peru, they uh, they happen to go off the side of the mountain and just not familiar with the terrain and stuff. The car just turned over and flipped, and he he got ejected from the race car and you know passed away then. Oh wow! Was, that was in 48, 1948. My father actually wasn't born at the time. My grandmother was pregnant with him at the time. He was born two months later. Knowing the history behind my grandfather and how my grandmother had to deal with the hardship and all that. And just dealing with a race car driver as a whole, <laughs> wanted my father to become something else but that. But that wasn't the plan. You know? Of course. So his legacy kept on going with, with my father. My father did a lot of stuff in Argentina 
uh, when he started basically driving a car at 15 years old and building his own cars over there. So really the tradition and where I come in, I'm, I'm kind of third generation uh, inside the company mm-hmm. and how I've been basically uh, bred and, and just learned so much through my father going to the races, building engines, you know, having so many race cars through the years that he's raced in, just being obviously around it for so long, you know, adapt to it. My brother also um, raced for many years in shifter carts. Ah, cool. Um, yep. We used to race 125cc shifter carts. Cool. We were two-time champion down here in Florida, and we were sponsored by, uh, what was the uh, cart uh, at the time? Uh, Burrell Chassis, which oh, were yeah, actually, yeah. out of Italy. We were the first to import the chassis here um, cool. to Florida, and um, we used to do a lot of testing and what have you with uh, with their chassis. And oh. uh, it kind of grew up into the Formula 2000 series that my brother drove in as well. I did a lot of stuff marketing-wise, helping out with, with the car and all that. Hmm. And uh, and then we just basically decided this, you know, we need to obviously either finish college, you know, or move on with the business and um, decided to obviously not take the racing route, <laughs> more get involved into the business. And actually, actually make some money rather than spending it all. So, <laughs> yeah, because our idea was to go to Indy, you know, yeah. car. that was yeah. the idea is to continue and, and go into Indy. But um yeah, we just, uh, we got entrenched into the business and, you know, we're still here and we're continuing to grow. No, that's a fantastic story, actually. It's probably actually one of our better ones. Um, that's awesome. So, all right, I'm going to cut to it. Valve trains are probably not the sexiest thing people think about when it comes to cars, but they're important. So how do you market something like that to make it interesting? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great question because, I mean, it's it's tough to make just any engine part sexy you know, mm-hmm. as a whole, yeah. we look at it as, as a point that we're so passionate about it that mm-hmm. we bring to the table that, that sexiness to it and that passion to it, you know, being that if you don't actually run a particular valve or run these particular engine components, you can't be the top guy out there. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can't, you can't do what you're doing in your engine with the OEM or the stock parts today, you know, right. You don't actually get involved in doing these type of components or in the valves, you know. So we really try to market ourselves to where it's a necessity, you know, yeah. for what what arena we live in and what environment we live in. Yeah. If you want to truly build a good race car, solid race car, and you're spending say twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars on an engine, this is a must-have. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that makes sense. That makes now. Is it more of a um, outreach? We make it a must-have, or do people come to you because you know it's a leading question? But is it kind of one of those like it sells itself, or is it one of those you have to go and show the brand through sponsored cars, through trade shows, through demos of stuff breaking? Yeah, I mean it's it's twofold. I mean we're we're next year we're a fifty-year-old company, so mm-hmm. at this point we have one programs that we set up every year with mm-hmm. with large race teams. As well as we still deal with the guy that builds three or four engines, race engines a year, typical engine builder, because that's how the business has been created. Yeah. That we still really cater to and we get them up to speed uh, really what's going on in technology and what's being pushed, you know, overall. 
what helps us out is we're so close with doing so much development work consistently, especially when it comes with General Motors, Ford, uh, Harley Davidson. Uh, we do a lot of exotic, say, um, you know, the car that's that's out there, which is the um, Kona Sig. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we do the valves for Kona Sig. So a lot of the exotic cars are now getting involved in the past four or five years with the best of the best components because an exotic car today, if you're not making a thousand horsepower, right. It's not an exotic car anymore. You're right. You're really not, you know, why even showcase it, you know, at this point. So it becomes uh, a thing that now you need viable components, better quality components to really make these, these type of horsepower, you know, overall. So the main aspect of it is both trade shows and obviously being out there in social media, but just having our client base that we've had for 30, 40 years, you mm-hmm. know, we're continuing to service and we just continue to grow on that. You know, we're a company, we're a family owned company. We, we grow, but we grow steadily. You right. Know, we grow in, in large spurts like most other companies that you see in our industry, because due to maybe investments or other, other companies coming in, investing in their company, uh, to grow that business even further, you know, mm-hmm. which, which for us, we like it because the gradual growth that we continue to have is we can continue to expand one art development as well as our machinery and capabilities. You know, we're doing a lot of stuff today, automation, you know, we've been bringing in the past four years. We do a lot of automation here in, in mm-hmm. Fort Lauderdale in Florida to help out with the manufacturing, you mm-hmm. know? So um, that's where the know-how really comes in and we, uh, we adapt to it. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, for, um, for those who've been in the industry for a while, it's a question I always like to ask is like, how have you seen your marketing change? I mean, more than just the, oh, we've got on the internet and we've gotten on social. Like nowadays, when you think of marketing, like what, is, what does that mean to you? Right. So I, I'm, I'm kind of both ways where I, I was in this industry when print was, we basically came out with a half page ad and you knew in about 30 days, 60 days, you're getting a phone call, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. oh, you guys have new products. This is, you know, a new application for these products, whatever the case is. Yeah. Now, obviously that's gone away, you know, somewhat to the wayside where, right. Socials become a lot more, interactive one-on-one with people so my feeling towards it is we've been leaning more towards digital in the Mm -hmm. past three years Mm -hmm. Uh, we've gotten really aggressive with social in the past year and a half two years Mm -hmm. which our numbers really show Mm -hmm. and print has just kind of stayed there really print has really just do you need to be in that space absolutely you know Mm -hmm. you still need to be in the print space but what we've done more than anything than done ads in print is we've done a lot more tech articles mm. with the Mac. Mm. Mm. Um, we've done one-on-one builds where it's it's an exotic build or a build really that's necessary for us with the input to be in there. Mm-hmm. And that we felt, we feel that it's it's given us a lot more reach than just putting a half page ad, you know, yeah. really in the Mac. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, you know, we were talking to a colleague of ours, Marat, who works at, Porsche or worked with Porsche the last episode. And one of the things we were talking about is, you know, how you create your content nowadays. Um, and, you know, it, 
there's always kind of this divide between do I go out and do I have someone like I have cool things and I go out and have someone come in and take photos for me and video for me and edit for me. And I just rely on them to create good marketing and it goes out versus we can create it ourselves because we're closest to the material. We know the customer the best. We have our hands on stuff. Like, where do you feel like you kind of fall there? Like, do you feel like you're in the, we can just come up with cool stuff and it goes on social or we also have to leverage other people to help us because we're busy working on cars? No, I mean, we're, we're so one-on-one now with social mm-hmm. that we can put out something new and we can launch it easily mm-hmm. on social, you know, overall. Mm-hmm. What we've been trying to gain more uh, coverage of is video. And mm-hmm. video, we've been... We're, we're the only uh, Valtrain company, period, that have really gone after video. Not so much, yeah, new product, but also the know-how. Okay, you have a valve, a typical person that's, you know, in a garage building an engine doesn't really know the ins and outs mm-hmm. of how to install a valve properly. So mm-hmm. we go through the process slowly, how to dummy it down as much as we can, and the fact that, all these things you have to look at before installing a proper valve, you know, yeah. inside a cylinder head. So that's where we're getting to the point where we're trying to, you know, reach more of that 25 to 35 year old demographic. Sure. So he can gauge enough of it where he doesn't hurt himself in the fact of building this engine. And then, you know, you start up, whatever, run it for a couple hundred miles and then it's done, you know? Right. Enough where he knows to either go to the machine shop or if he has the right tooling, he can go and do this himself. But mm. that content really is expanding for us further and further uh, each year. And like I mentioned, it was, it's been about a year and a half that we've been really growing on video. Yeah. Um, yeah. More than, than just doing pictures out there. Because, yeah, images are great, but you can only obviously gauge a certain amount, you know, from an image, you know? No, I, I, yeah, I definitely get that. Do you feel that, especially with the work that you're doing in social, do you feel that it's more, people are more interested in the, like you said, the how to's and the technical stuff, or do they also want to have a bit of element of like, I know the guys that work there, you know, I know the events they go to, or is it kind of a combo? It's kind of a combination, but it's more the how to, you mm-hmm. know, that's really because in engine building, the reality is there's a lot of secrecy to engine building. And that's why race teams have the edge and one race team wins over the other, vice mm-hmm. versa, you know? There's a lot of argument that you could say that, you know, NASCAR today is all the same. It isn't, right. you know? Sure. But, and, and most other sanction bodies that are out there, but the reality is it really comes down to where you find that small niche inside the engine that gives you that extra edge, you know? Right. So, we go that extra mile to give, you know, the typical guy that's that's building a, a race engine or performance engine for the weekend, that same type of edge, like we do our most of our big race teams that we deal with, you know, yeah. you know, overall. So we love to really put that information out there to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have similar information as well, you know, because the reality is, whether it's a four valve engine or a two valve engine, you know, it's an engine at the end of the day. It's a combustion engine. Yeah, exactly. You know, so things are, are having uh, to be built very similar. You yeah. Know, overall, you yeah. know, dynamics wise, you can look at different designs on valves or cylinder head designs or what have you. But 
it, it, it's the the way of engine building has has been true tested for 60 70 years you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah, so, yeah. that makes sense that makes sense it's just now, we have better tools today to work right. with them right right and right. um you know better know-hows and that's where we're trying to just educate more than anything we, we had a big spurt in the early 2000s with education where the sport compact market came about and we got involved heavily in the four-cylinder market you know mm. so you talk about the hondas you talk about the nissans the toyotas yeah again that was generation back then in the early 2000s which i kind of grew with those guys as well mm -hmm. um those guys needed to know how to because you know they're slapping turbos on a four-cylinder engine and running x amount of boost and there wasn't the ECUs and the data logs that we use today. A lot of that testing that was done back then and, and still we do today, you know, we, we really feed off of that as well. Yeah. Because yeah. there's so much testing that we can do in-house here where we like true testing out there where you're putting the car on the track. It's, you know, 100 degree temperature outside. Mm -hmm. Engine temperature is X amount. You know, you're pushing our components into the limit. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you, do you find that... And the reason why I'm digging into a lot of this is because because you have one of those, how do I put this? You have one of those more technical components that people don't really think about when they first think about motorsports and first think about cars, but it's critical to the running of the vehicle, right? And then when we get into the how-tos, I kind of get more curious about how, how much of an interest the customer has in the how-to. Is it like, I don't know how valves work, or I have an SR20 and I'm trying to make it do 700 horsepower? Like, do you find that from the material that you put out as far as good marketing, it's more valuable for someone to say, here's a how-to generally so that you at least are aware of our product or application specific to get them to buy a specific thing? Right. We make it general to where it's the how-to or what series, because we carry, for example, on the valves of three different series. Mm -hmm. And we don't want you to put a performance valve that's, you know, good for a four or 500 horsepower engine. And a two thousand dollar and a two thousand horsepower engine. You right. Know? Right. So we get yeah, exactly. We get involved in just giving the whole spectrum, the whole umbrella, basically, on the mm. three different series and what to pick from. You know, mm. when you're doing your typical application, and and I have to say, uh, I'm impressed in the fact that the education of today of the buyer, yeah, is exponential. You know, compared yeah. to what it used to be ten years ago. And, and I have to really, I have to attest to the internet to that because they feed into, yeah, forms used to be great back in the day, but then you have one guy that's on the form trying to dictate what everybody else should be doing. You know? Right. Yeah. That doesn't work today, you know, mm -hmm. like it used to be. And I, and I call that the mid 2000s syndrome, you know, yeah. when forms used to be really popular. Today, the typical uh, engine builder will go out there and get educated and then will call us and say, okay, we just need a second opinion. What do you feel about this or that, you know? Right. So they're, they're already, they're geared up already, I think, mm -hmm. to, to really know how to pick the right components, mm -hmm. how the right valve spring or retainer for their combination. But mm -hmm. they just need that extra push to really get them to uh commit to know that they're they're really making the right choice you know on the purchase no that makes sense i mean i i think really kind of in like a summary it's more of the fact that you know marking now leads as much to customer education as it does the wow factor of something shiny and it does. Absolutely. Yeah, 
Yeah, and, and you know, and I think that the the balance that we see a lot of times is when the internet first came out and Instagram and social was kind of a thing. The wow factor did it for people because it was new, and so people were like, "Oh, look at this sick picture," or you know, even look at this sick video that doesn't really give me anything, but it's just shiny. And that can be good for grabbing eyeballs and attention from time to time. But like you say, with so much access to the internet and so much access to information, it benefits your customers to be able to have the knowledge around your product so that you become one of those household names especially in kind of that, I don't want to call it a micro demographic because that's a little bit too technical, but in an, in an area that you kind of don't think about until you start getting into your engine, right? Um, it's sort of like, what turbo do I run? Uh, what valves do I have? Um, what gaskets do I use? Right. Uh, what EC? And like, when you start getting down to that level of, of, of detail, that's not, you know, you normally don't think of brands off the top of your head like that because you're thinking of manufacturer brands, you're thinking of engines, like for your general customer, right? They only go that deep. Right. Sure. And so the, re the reason why I was digging into the line of questioning, too, which is super helpful, is for a company like yours that really focuses on like a, I, let's call it like a subdomain specialty, like valve trains are. Right. How do you not only give them the knowledge so that they feel like when they're ready to buy, they buy your stuff, but also make it attractive enough that they pay attention so that they don't get lost in the noise of everything else that's on the Internet? Yeah, that's that's a good aspect of it. And that's where, right, the, uh, you nailed it, is the education really, uh, because in, in some cases, you know, we, we have a lot of our sales staff will spend a good amount of an hour uh, or a half hour, you know, call it with, with that particular engine builder. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that sale doesn't happen and it's okay, you mm -hmm. know, because we can then educate that person to know possibly that next time that they know what is the right purchase. And, and, and I can tell you, we've gone through many cases where they call us up and our competitors valve they're having issues with. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we tell them point blank, it's not the issue of the competitors valve. You right. Know? It's the issue of this, this, and that, or what, how it's actually being installed and what's being looked at. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Then, then actual, um, then actual failure on on a particular valve because easily said and done that they could install our valve. And yeah, possibly it could last longer for them. Yeah. But that failure point could come, you know. Right, right, right. Now, this is going to be a noob question because I, honestly, I don't really talk about valve trains that much. Um, do you typically have customers that just buy like 32 valves for their engine because they're working on a build? Or is it more like I'm going to buy a thousand because I'm a race team and I need to have them when I have them? Yeah, we have both spectrums. I mean, as well, we're set up as a company, we're not retail based company. So, mm, okay. distributors. We do Right, distribution. So we don't really deal with the public, but you can go through our website and purchase valves. Mm -hmm. you know, correct. Typically, we deal with distribution and then, you know, large manufacturers, again, like GM, Ford, you know, Chrysler, uh, Harley-Davidson. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, larger corporations. Edelbrock, we deal with a lot of different cylinder head manufacturers, too, mm -hmm. that they come out with new cylinder head designs, and then they opt to obviously... Uh, use our valves and their designs, you know. Right, for, right, right, right. That makes sense. That makes sense. We do a lot of different other projects too. We've done stuff for the military. Um, cool. Anything really that has a combustion uh, valve inside of it. I mean, we've done stuff for natural gas engines that pump oil out of the ground. Mm. Um, that we've done projects on that that spectrum that doesn't have to do anything with the racing industry, you know, overall. But in most cases these type of companies come to us with the know-how and these projects 
mature themselves because we kind of guide them through where what materials, what processes, and really what designs to use, or yeah. if they're having issues with wear with the original components, you know, mm -hmm. well, mm -hmm. which still, you know, believe it or not, still happens today, you know. No, that makes, no, I believe it. I, like I am the probably the least technical person in the world, so I can't even be like, oh yeah, I, I find that hard to believe. Like, no. Um, okay, so here here's kind of a leading question: is given you know this move to social and this pro, you know move to educate more customers and all that, what do you think your biggest pain or challenge though is when marketing now? Because you have so many people who have access to you and you have access to them, and you're trying to give them specific information. Like, what do you think is your biggest challenge? Just keeping up with it. I mean, that's, mm. I think, our biggest challenge is staying in the forefront of it. Um, just trying to really feed the, the, the proper channels yeah, uh, to push that information correctly to the uh, to that customer or to the end user. You know, overall, mm. I think, I think not only us as a company, I think most companies, whether you're in the race industry or in any other industry, has an issue with that, you know, mm. because... You, you're so open wide now to so many different platforms. Where do you feed that platform? You know, at what time or what day or, and what's the proper way of, of doing it? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's the, that's the big challenge for us is just keeping up with, with what, uh, what's newer out there and how to get, get in front of it, you know? Yeah. Do you, do you feel like that's more of a, a need for strategy, kind of like at the beginning of the year, you sit and say, what are we going to do? Or is it more of a chase the wind sort of thing where we find something cool and see what sticks, kind of see what trends are going on with other people, maybe try something different? What? How do you kind of assess that out, you feel? No, we, we strategize it. Um, we feed a lot into it, into the trade shows, you know. Mm. We do SEMA, we do PRI, and we also do a show out in England, which is Autosport Engineering, mm -hmm. based out of uh, Birmingham in the UK. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we feed not only European, but the US market, and then really strategize how our marketing plans really is going to come together in social, you know. Mm -hmm. at that point. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, we do also follow the trends, like the trend that's happening now with the new Supra that's come out. Yeah. <laughs> that just literally blew up the internet within yeah. you know, the last week, mm -hmm. we already have two companies that want to send us a cylinder head to do development for the new car. This already leads us into being like we always want to be. Like we did the benchmark on the new GTR platform. We were the first to come out mm -hmm. with that. Mm -hmm. uh, with the LS market, we were the first to come out with hollow stem valves and valve train for the LS market. Mm -hmm. Same thing that we just did new 2018 coyote build for the ford mm -hmm. uh, mustang we were the first to come out with valve train components for that engine so mm -hmm. you know we feed into the trend as well and we like to follow that that aspect too because we like to always know how things are being worked and developed yeah. uh, by these companies and then better it because again we didn't reinvent the cylinder head we didn't reinvent the valve Right. We're just making things five or 10 times better overall for what's up and coming. And sometimes, you know, these trends or applications don't really hit the market for another year or two years. It's OK right. with us, yeah. you know, because during the process, like most applications today, you're making 500 horsepower. Tomorrow, you're making 2000 horsepower. Right. You know? right. So we evolve with that. Like we're 
we're in a point now with the GTR market that they're just over 3000 horsepower with that car, you know? So we've been evolving ever slow every year with yeah. that car and that engine platform to just make things last, you know, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. same aspect with the LS market, you know, and the LT one market as well. We're just, we're evolving with that market because today, and you've probably heard if you're building an LS, you're not putting turbos on it. What are you really doing? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Are you really true. making any type of horsepower? You know. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny because we get into this conversation. What's really a street car today? Yeah. And so people call us. Oh, we're building a street car. Well, it's a thousand horsepower. <laughs> really? <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I need to get so, to work really fast. So. <laughs> you know, you're probably old enough to know this, and I am too. And the fact that you know, street car used to be three, four hundred right. horsepower. Yeah, you know? once you got 450 and above, you were kind of moving out of streetcar territory. And right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's like if you're not making a thousand, you're not competing. You know. Right. Yep. So those aspects are are completely changed. And um, what I like about the industry and where car car makers are in general, where they're going, is it almost reminds me of the late 60s to early 70s where GM and Ford were really competing heavily against each other like they're yeah. doing today, you know? Yeah, yeah, because first we have the Hellcat, and then we have a Shelby, and then we have it, yeah, yeah, and then, yep, yep. And then, the, you know, like, GM you know, we had this GT500 come out, you know, with 700 horsepower. Right. You know, you know, these cars, you look at them, and no typical buyer, one, needs to buy a car like this, you know, <laughs> but two, an enthusiast that does, he better have some good skill to handle 700 horsepower. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. And that's kind of the same sentiment that I get from, you know, the guys that own these cars back in the late 60s and early 70s. Mm -hmm. you know? Well, we're, we're kind of back in that era again of cars that'll kill you. Like, right. it, we, we were kind of in that mid-area from like when the late 90s to early 2000s where it was like the cars are either super light or super rare or they just were hard to get a hold of that made the crazy power and then you just had like the really good like 450 500 horsepower yeah it was fast but it wasn't going to kill you and now we're back like you say it's almost like a throwback to the 60s where you're like oh by the way here's a 750 horsepower sedan what like <laughs> you can just pick up from the dealership and buy and take home you're like uh okay <laughs> Yeah, which is, is is great. I think we're in a we're in a great point, you know, in the car industry today. Yeah. Um, well, because they're reliable, right? It's it's seven hundred horsepower all day, every day. Not seven hundred horsepower when you you know push the red button or you get the special tune from the factory or you do it in your friend's shop. It's like it comes out of the factory with seven hundred horsepower. Everyone mm -hmm. just nods and moves on to the next one, right? Um, which is crazy nowadays. You know? Yeah, and that's that's what we've learned in just like the development process and doing metallurgy testing on most of the components that come out of these cylinder heads, obviously making things, again, better. And we've just seen exponentially these manufacturers really come out with better quality components, you know, valve yeah. components for these engines. So, like I tell most people today, if people are not really doing the homework, what's originally in there. Yeah, you best do your homework, you know, and see what aftermarket parts you're really buying, because you might be buying something that's less than what's originally in there today. Right, 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 right. That makes sense. So that it's sense. it's again, it's it's that point where we're we're in a good point, you know, and, and it's a good era that we're we're leaning into with a lot of these big horsepower engines. Mm -hmm. And right, the quality has just gotten exponential. It's gone great, you know, mm -hmm. overall. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so I have I have two questions for you, and they are completely unrelated to one another. Um, so my my first question would be for marketers that you talk to, if you could just give one piece of advice from the work you've done, what do you think it would be? First, really learn the industry before you really go out and and market yourself properly. You know, don't try to, and it's so easy today to just jump on social and just start putting stuff up. You know, and working yourself into that arena. But like I tell most people, try to get yourself so entrenched in the market first and then go out there and really expose yourself properly, you know? Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. everything is so quick to the minute now that everybody just feels like they need to just get on things much faster than say their competitors are. Mm -hmm. But sometimes that leads you into just putting out um, one, bad information, you know, not reliable information. And two, just putting out content that really is not useful to that person that's really trying to, one, maybe learn about your company or two, learn about your products, you know, mm -hmm. overall. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I take the fact that um, just having some time really to get yourself involved in, in whatever industry, whether it's race industry or manufacturing, whatever, first really educate yourself and get yourself really involved in that before you go out there and expose yourself, you know? Good. Because you can make yourself look like a true, you know, ass, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, true. true. Rather than an expert, you just look dumb. Yeah. 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 And, I and that's, I mean, that's, I see that in a lot of new businesses today that they really don't, don't have any type of direction and they're just pushing themselves out there. And like they say, one bad picture can lead into another bad image or content or whatever the case is. And now that exposure or that fan base or even that customer can lead into just going away for you, you know? Yeah. And yeah. You, you build a rep rapport at that point that really is not something that you felt that, that would have been good for you. You know, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, and I think kind of to tag onto that, we kind of talk about making sure that your messaging is clear of like what you do and what you offer. Because to your point, like I see so many people just shooting out stuff so fast because they just want to go fast that their social brand is confusing. You're like, I don't really know what you do and why I'm following you. Or it's really random video-y stuff that's just not, doesn't drive you anywhere or give you any value proposition. So I don't really know why I'm following that brand anymore. It's just kind of noisy. And, right. and that's that's a good statement and, and that's another thing is it, it just gets too crowded with too many things that you're doing and it really is not not getting down to where it's a it's a nature or a specific three or four products that you get involved in you know yeah yeah that's that's i mean a, a great point too and the fact that you know a lot of companies get involved in other companies being involved in their company and it gets wishy-washy that a lot of that stuff gets involved, you know? Throughout. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, in, in the aspect of content, some people argue the fact that you need to have somewhat of a formalized, you know, content being pushed through. We feel the same way about that, but we like, we like adversity where you're pushing, you know, valve, you know, being tested and then turn having, a car that's coming out that's a record-breaking car putting that up you know mm -hmm. having some type of variety you know mm -hmm. really with the um with the end user and the customer 
but still you're still staying within that that bracket or that area that leads into obviously um you know sometimes sales obviously and or just interest you know yeah. involved in, in the industry as a whole you know yeah. Okay, my last question. You get six months off from work. You have an unlimited budget to race whatever you want. What do you go do? What what kind of car I go race? Hey, I, whatever you want. Like literally, you have six months off from work and a big old bag of cash. And they say, go racing, whatever you want to go race. What do you go do? I'd probably go out and do drag racing. You know? Cool. Yeah. I'd like to actually get involved in doing pro mod, you know? Ah, nice. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. Nice, nice. And as well as not only doing the big V8 Pro Mod guys, but I'd love to do any type of drag racing with, uh, uh, say, an inline six or a turbocharged import car. Mm -hmm. I just like the thrill of, uh, of drag racing, although I, I've been I've been brought up uh, more circuit and road racing, you know, where it used to be sought after more in the 80s and 90s, mm -hmm. uh, road racing aspect today. I hate to say it, it's not really a spectator sport. Yeah. Uh, you sit in a turn and wait for that car to come around. You yeah. hope and pray that car didn't go in the pits, you know, yeah. that your favorite driver or your car or whatever you're looking at uh, when you're at the track. But, you know, the, uh, yeah, the drag racing scene, I think, is, is great in the aspect that Street Outlaws has brought in a whole other uh, arena and no Pratt and a lot of these different track events you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that has enticed a lot of the different uh end users or customers to build these cars and go out and compete with these guys and know that it's 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 a reachable market in the fact that look you can do it i can do it you know mm -hmm. if we have a decent amount of money we can build a car and go out and compete that i think in in compared to road racing drag racing is still very affordable where a typical person can go out there and really relate and compete, you know? Well, it, it was funny you said racing shifters because I race tag. And oh, one of the okay. Yeah, and, and one of the reasons I, I find it funny because you're kind of coming full circle on spectator is, you know, my wife wasn't interested for me to go into cars for one of the reasons is that, you know, cars disappear around the corner and then you don't know what happens to them. Right. And you kind of wait, hope he comes back. And, da, da, da. and she's like, well, at least with cars, I can see you the whole time. And I was like, okay, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, it, it got me what I needed. I was like, well, I guess I'm buying more tires. So win for me. But <laughs> Right. And, you know, I mean, you think about NASCAR, you know, you sit anywhere in NASCAR and you see the cars going around, you know, circles, you know, and that's, that's why it's become as popular as it's become. And obviously, you know, the crashes and drinking beer and all that good stuff <laughs> with it, you know? Yeah. Those are fun. And, and, you know, obviously even NASCAR has to, you know, maybe get to a point where it becomes, again, somewhat affordable for a typical company, you know, small or medium-sized company to compete in those, in that, in that arena, you know, yeah, overall. Yeah. yeah, just road racing as a whole, it's just become so expensive, really, to, yeah. to go out and, and race. And knowing what my father went through when he raced down here, as well as he did a lot of races in Central America, mm -hmm. um, you know, and he won many races here. We used to even compete against Jack Roush, you know, overall, mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of different events where Jack was basically driving the car, you know, fixing the car, and he had a couple of crew members, you know, racing out there. Again, it was it was fairly inexpensive to to do, you know. Yeah. Like, 
but yeah, drag racing would definitely be my cup of tea. <laughs> cool. cool. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. I, I asked that question always because it lets me get an insight of the racer of the person because it's unlimited budget. You can do whatever you want. So they can pick whatever they feel like. Yeah. Okay. And, and even as a evolution part of it, mm-hmm. not to say that road racing doesn't have evolution when it becomes uh, really technology in most of these engines. I mean, you talk about Formula One, it's it's a tier, you know, level, highest level of racing, you know, mm-hmm. and technology mm-hmm. uh, that's out there. But drag racing is, is pretty amazing in the aspect how how much it continues to evolve year after year. Mm-hmm. Because, again, these guys are continuing to push these engines with more and more horsepower, you know. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's the drag racers always looking for that edge. And he's constantly evolving with um, with his engine. You know, mm-hmm. overall, and turbos have helped out. Nitrous has helped out. You know, makes mm-hmm. our parts, you know, last that much longer. Makes our parts look that much better. You know, when the, you know, when turbochargers and you know power outers are being put in a lot of right, right. Engines, you know. Well, cool. That's what I got. Right. Excellent. Oh, Azik, I appreciate your time. This is really, really helpful. Yeah, not a problem. You know, we appreciate you guys. Um, you know, hopefully I can get back on there again and, you know, learn some other stuff and, and uh, get involved in, you know, other aspects of, of doing, you know, podcasts, maybe education wise, you know, that would be awesome. Some you know, users. yeah. So actually to actually, to the thought of it, if you have ideas for like a topic you want to cover, we did this with um, uh, Andrew Martino with uh, Haltech last week. We were okay. talking about we're relationship building in motorsport, and we turned that into a bit of a podcast. And it, it was something as informal as he just hit me up on Instagram and said, hey, I want to do something about relationships in motorsports and how that all works. Can you help us out? And we jumped on a podcast, and we did a thing, and we were good. So okay. if something like that crosses your mind, don't hesitate to reach out and be like, hey, do you have time to talk about this? Um, cause even if we don't know about it, you'll know about it and we can just carry the conversation. So. Right, right. Definitely. Absolutely. I appreciate your time. This has been cool. Thanks for your time. All right, sir. Thanks guys. On behalf of our guest, Davin and myself, thank you all for listening. And you guys know the drill. Give us a rating on iTunes. And if you haven't done so already, subscribe. If you have any follow-up questions for ourselves or our guest, have a guest request or would like to be a guest yourself, feel free to reach out to us at studioroad.com. See you next time.